Thanks for joining us for episode 13 of the Tar Sands Diplomat, the satirical diplomatic thriller set at the Canadian mission in Brussels. We are now halfway through the book, and the best we believe is still to come. In a strange real-world parallel to the book, the European CETA trade deal has run into trouble, and the Canadian premiers have announced a trade mission to Brussels. If McGregor didn't like one minister visiting, you can imagine what he'd say about 13 premiers. And now, on to the book. Here's Keith reading episode 13. The Tarsan's Diplomat, Chapter 15, I Become a Pariah An hour later, after a brief stop at the hotel to change our oil-spattered clothes, we were on our way to the European Commission. I ended up in a minivan with a half-dozen delegates. The ride was awkward. Why does McGregor get to sit in the front? muttered the asbestos representative, prompting a series of complaints from the others. How come he didn't get sprayed with oil? And why wasn't there any security? And how did they get those briefing notes? The Foreign Service hasn't even given those to me. Hey, we're on YouTube already, said the Associate Grand Chief, brandishing his phone. Look, here's the ambassador. This seemed to have a soothing and distracting effect on the delegates, as they repeatedly replayed the ambassador putting his hand into the leghold trap. I was pleased to finally get to the commission, a long, quiet session of the asbestos working group inside a secure facility was exactly what my nerves needed. Van de Vleert had kept his word and put on a good show. There were little notepads with Canadian and European Union flags on the top, with the date and location underneath. They even had little visitor packages in small vinyl briefcases full of handy information about the European treaties and where to have dinner in Brussels. Van de Vleert and his team were suitably sympathetic as they watched the YouTube video with the Associate Grand Chief, except for one junior Scandinavian fellow who exclaimed, Look at how many thousands of people have viewed it already. You've gone viral. The bliss of solitary contemplation in the asbestos working group was soon disturbed by my Blackberry, which rang annoyingly. I turned it off. Thirty seconds later, Van de Vleert's assistant appeared in the doorway, whispering that my assistant Lucille was on the line for me. I picked up the phone in the hallway. Your voicemail box is full, hissed Lucille. I know, I hissed back. It had been for a week but now wasn't the time to tell her about my distaste for voicemail. Well, she said, the media are calling for you. CBC, the Toronto Papers, the Quebec Papers, everybody. She was clearly exasperated by all the phone answering she was expected to do. Tell them to talk to Media Division, I said. It's their job to talk to the press. Media Division are referring them all to you. They say you're the man on the spot, McGregor. I thought about this for a minute. What about the ambassador? He's our public face. He's getting his hand x-rayed, and he got a blow to the head, said Lucille. What about Kennedy, I asked, with the ambassador. Hravinsky? He just laughed. Cornelia, I said hopefully. She's with you. Look, can I give them your cell phone number? Sure, I said finally, hanging up. I took my Blackberry out of my pocket to make sure it was turned off. If the Canadian media ignored all our good news press releases and only covered us when disaster struck, then they could make up their stories without my assistance today. After the working sessions, Cornelia went back to the mission to participate in the inevitable blame-storming session. I had no appetite for that. Everyone would blame me for the trap fiasco, even though I was sure I had grabbed the bag marked new. And somehow I would get blamed for the Green Alliance showing up, although it baffled me how they knew exactly where and when to show up. 
There would be the usual debate about whether to have the police go after the protesters before everyone realized that the Green Alliance would like nothing better than a lengthy and controversial court case with the Canadian government. Instead, I took the can-do candidate delegates out for a boozy dinner. It seemed like the least I could do. A drunk delegation is a happy delegation, as they say. I took them to Spinakopke, my favorite Flemish restaurant with the fine traditional waterzoi recipe. I covered the bill myself, telling them it was on the mission, which left everyone with the warm feeling that they could pocket their government per diems. They soon appeared to forgive me for the day's events. They watched the ambassador stick his hand into the trap on YouTube several dozen times and ordered every kind of Belgian beer on the menu. As we went along, I gave them advice on how to play day two with their various negotiating partners. They seemed to find this useful. Much to my surprise, I even enjoyed myself, despite the knowledge that my colleagues were undoubtedly poking sharp pins into my effigy back at the office. Indeed, the next morning at the mission, it was clear I was in purgatory. I could hear Lucille and Cornelia talking about how badly the ambassador had been hurt, how brave Kennedy had been before Ian Culloden covered her in oil, and how I had hidden under a table. No one seemed to remember that Pravinsky was under the table, too. Remember when you brought up the Intelligence Division warning? said Lucille to Cornelia. McGregor ignored it and made jokes about Fordor's guides from Moscow or something. Yeah, said Cornelia, and there was no security at all. She'd somehow forgotten that she was supposed to be in charge of security. I closed the door. I needed something tumultuous and anguished, so I put on Romeo and Juliet by Prokofiev. After the previous day's incident, thanks to the time difference to Ottawa, headquarters had an extra six hours to work itself into an uproar about the doctored briefing notes. These were sure to be front-page news when the Canadian papers came out in a few hours, Brussels time. Already, several of the European papers had picked up the story with the kind of headlines that give officials nervous breakdowns. Secret Canadian oil tanker scheme blows up, said one. Greens blast backroom tar sands deal, said another, and so on. Messages were already coming in from our embassies across Europe as everyone rehashed their local press coverage and tried to add some punchy analysis about what it meant for Canadian interests in Spain, Germany, or wherever. The subtext was clear. Bungling at the mission in Brussels was damaging Canada's brand across the entire continent. My stomach churned as I watched the emails scroll down my inbox screen. It would only get worse once Ottawa woke up and read the papers. The Tar Sands Diplomat, Chapter 16, Ministerial Visits and Other Calamities There was a knock on my office door, and Lucille stuck her head in. She smiled. You've been reassigned to ride in the van with Senator Buffart's wheelchair, she said. Okay, I said. Who else is riding with me? Just you and Cornelia. The ambassador invited everyone else to ride in his car. Lucille smiled and closed the door. The ambassador's car left for the airport with Glostrom, Kennedy, Ravinsky, and Sherlock. Ottawa had actually asked Sherlock to provide security advice to the mission after the previous day's debacle. What Sherlock would actually do if we were attacked again was a mystery to me, and probably also to Sherlock. I followed in the van with Senator Buffart's wheelchair and Cornelia. She sat in the front and pointedly focused her inane chit-chat on the driver. Back at the airport's disco-era diplomatic lounge, we waited for the flight. The advance man side of Ravinsky had insisted on an early arrival. Sherlock was making patterns in the plush carpet with his foot, while some Burmese diplomats glared at Ravinsky for talking too loudly on his cell phone. They kept sticking their heads out from behind a dead plant and what looked like a defunct lava lamp. The Belgian clerk pretended we didn't exist.
Suddenly, an electro version of Flight of the Valkyries sounded from Hrvinsky's bag. A more important call has come in, he said into his Blackberry before hanging up. He rummaged among several phones in his bag. Where's my frigging Europhone? he muttered, before finding a cheap-looking orange handset with a flashing light. He got up and went to sit with the Burmese, so we couldn't hear him, whispering into his phone as he went. Why does he need four phones? asked Cornelia. That's a burner phone, replied Kennedy, in the tone she used for cretinous colleagues. Personal, prepaid, no monthly bill, no call records, no traces. But the French can still track it. If they find out about the number in time, sure. But it's probably not the French he's worried about. More likely the Minister of Finance's people or senior officials in the department or some future subpoena. Kennedy stood up and walked over to where Sherlock was looking out the window. Jim, she said, smiling and putting her hand on his arm. Her voice was soft, but I could still hear it. The lounge was as perfectly silent as the Commonwealth Division back in Ottawa. I was thinking about what you were saying. You might be onto something, said Kennedy. Maybe the prostitute did steal the duty officer's briefcase. Or maybe Julian even lost it at the stagiaire party. Anyway, then someone gave it to the Greens, and that's how they knew where the media lunch was. We just don't know what Julian had in that briefcase. Sherlock looked slightly puzzled. I wonder if he really had come up with that idea, or if Kennedy was just giving him credit to plant it better in his brain. I was about to open my mouth and point out that there were many other ways the Greens could have found out, but given my unpopularity, I decided to remain silent. Kennedy turned to Glostrom. Ambassador, there are sure to be questions in the media about security at your mission. Glostrom started as if electroshocked at the words media and your mission. He sat up straight and looked at Kennedy. She went on. It might be best if security division got ahead of the curve and proactively investigated Julian's briefcase. Glostrom nodded violently, and Sherlock produced his notebook and began scribbling. I really had to intervene now. Was the man investigating Julian's murder now supposed to start investigating Julian? Now look here, I said, before Hravinsky reappeared suddenly and interrupted. Okay, everyone, here's what I need. But, I said, McGregor, this is all about my agenda. Your stuff is later, said Hravinsky firmly. He was looking at a sticky note attached to the back of his phone. McGregor, two questions. First, are Leuven and Louvain the same place? Like Montreal and Montréal? He said the latter with an exaggerated sort of French immersion rolled R. More like Gruinsky and Hravinsky, I said, pronouncing Hravinsky with my best Ukrainian accent. Same name, but spelled different. Leuven is the Flemish town, and Louvain-la-Neuve is the new town nearby they built when the Flemish and French speakers couldn't get along anymore. They split the university in two, including the books in the library. Hravinsky nodded. Great. I wondered why it took so long to drive between them. Second, I need a funny Belgian joke. I told him that those wine bottle openers with two arms that you push down are called Belgian soldiers, because when you pull down the corkscrew, they raise their arms in the universal sign of surrender. Good one, said Ravinsky, scribbling the words Belgian soldier on the sticky note on the back of his phone. But I need something funny I can put in the minister's speech. I looked at Cornelia, Kennedy, Sherlock, and Glostrom for ideas. They stared back blankly. Anything funny from them would be purely unintentional. Well, I said, playing for time, how about something about French fries and Belgian-Canadian partnership? You know, that big Canadian frozen French fry plant in Belgium was just in the news. Hravinsky's overactive mind finished my thought. Perfect. They invented the fry. We invented cold. We're perfect partners to share frozen fries with the world. Okay, item two, he said. 
He stepped forward very close and towered over us as we sunk further into the faux disco lounge furniture. Yesterday was light entertainment. Today we get serious. I don't want any more oil sand stories in the media. This is about can-do Canada and asbestos and lumber and canola and all the things we're fighting the good fight for. Plus, one of my boss's ministers arrives in 15 minutes, and he won't be in a good mood after spending the entire flight with Senator Buffard, especially if she put dibs on all the little whiskey bottles like she usually does. He began to rummage in his bag. I'd like to show you something I carry with me whenever I visit embassies. Today's visit needs to go perfectly. He produced a page ripped from a magazine and held it in front of each of our faces in turn. Get it? That's the Buffalo skyline. Your next posting. Think Buffalo steel mills. Think Greenland, if that's scarier for you. Think about me in the Prime Minister's office phoning the head of personnel with a deep, angry grudge. No one spoke. You people have arranged a nice high-risk environment, so I am cutting the program back to three events. One, a private meeting with Sir Something Friddle at the Commission. Two, a small press conference where we tell the media that meeting number one was a total success. Three, dinner with carefully vetted Canadian guests at the ambassador's house, where we will tell the voters, I mean delegates, that meetings number one and two were total successes. We'll keep the meeting between Senator Buffart and the Canada Committee of the European Parliament, since that keeps her out of the way, but the minister will not go anywhere near it. The rest, gone, said Ravinsky, making a violent chopping motion with his phone to punctuate his point. Cornelia's lower lip twitched. But what about the Canadian-Belgian policy roundtable at the University in Louvain-la-Neuve? It's right, right here in the Gantt chart, she said, pointing at a PowerPoint slide she'd taped into her notebook. The topic is Canadian federalism, lessons for European integration. And then the perspectives on bilingualism session in Leuven. I spent six weeks organizing it all. You should have spent five minutes arranging security at yesterday's lunch, retorted Ravinsky. Cornelia gaped at him. But, but what do I tell the academics? He pointed his finger right at Cornelia and leaned towards her aggressively. Don't you fucking get it? This is about getting Canadian oil into Europe getting votes, and screwing the Russians as much as we can. No more ambush opportunities. No more bad news. This visit has to go perfectly, and I don't give a fuck about some Belgian professors. Tell them the minister had to do his nails for all I care. Kravinsky barked orders at each of us in turn. And keep that wheelchair out of sight. Senator Buffart will go off like a deep fat fryer explosion if she sees it before she asks for it. So, I waited with the wheelchair behind the duty-free chocolate shop enduring the suspicious stares of the sales clerks. When I was a younger officer, I assumed such humiliations would eventually stop as I became more senior. Instead, they became more exquisitely tortuous. Finally, the minister and an enormous woman in a bright green moo-moo appeared, with a young assistant scurrying behind. I leaned against a pillar nonchalantly, reading the Brussels paper, until Glostrom, Kennedy, and Hravinsky made contact. Once the group began walking towards the exit, I sneaked from pillar to pillar in the background. The wheelchair had a squeaky axle, but no one could hear it over the sound of Senator Buffart complaining about how narrow the seats were on the minister's jet. The airport was moderately crowded, and we flowed along with the travelers in our corridor. As we passed another corridor joining from the right, I saw Cornelia's head swivel. She clattered ahead, whispered something to the group, and everyone looked in alarm to the right and accelerated. Senator Buffart seemed suddenly as spry as Kennedy as she sprinted to the exit. 
I accelerated my wheelchair to maximum speed, weaving through Belgian holidaymakers like a Formula One driver at Spa, Francorchamps. Suddenly, a large group appeared from the corridor on the right. My shoes slid helplessly on the polished floor, and my wheelchair skidded painfully into the shin of a tall, bald man. His shirt said, Brussels Eco Conference, and he was holding a sign that said, Welcome, Green Alliance Activists. I goggled in amazement as I recognized the camera woman with the Belarusian wrestling build from the previous day's press conference disaster. And beside her was Ian Culloden, deep in discussion, with a woman covered in piercings and tattoos. The red-haired woman was a step behind, with a bandage across the bridge of her nose. I made a note to tell Natalia. They didn't seem to recognize me, which is one of the benefits of being a forgettable mid-ranking official. I reversed, turned sharply to the left, said, Excuse me, American Embassy, in English, and rolled away as fast as I could, trying to keep my body covering the Canadian flag on the back of the wheelchair. Could we really have scheduled Can-Do Canada to overlap with a green conference in Brussels? How they would mock us at the naughty ambassador pub back in Ottawa, I thought bitterly. I burst out the door into the arrival sidewalk, just in time to see Cornelia jump into an already rolling limo. The minister's car must have already left. I ran as fast as my leather shoes would take me towards the remaining car. I folded the wheelchair deftly and jammed it in the side door. I leaped in after it, pulling the door closed behind me. My instincts of postings in Africa and Moscow coming back, I slammed down the lock. A dark figure suddenly appeared on the other side of the tinted window and grabbed at my door handle. Memories of my close call with carjackers and Chad came back to me. Allez, vite! I shouted to the driver. The driver floored it, and I snapped back into my plush leather seat as we accelerated for the motorway. I craned my neck and could see figures behind us shaking their fists at us. I smiled as they disappeared into the distance. That's a wrap for episode 13 of the Tarsans Diplomat. Join us again next week via iTunes or Stitcher for episode 14 and what happens to McGregor next. If you have any comments, please email me at khalliday at tarsansdiplomat.com or visit the website at keithhalliday.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>